You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Zoop Good Really Good, which makes premium flavor-forward broths and broth concentrates crafted with home cooks in mind. For more information, visit www.zoopbroth.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome top chef Stephanie Izard. In this episode, we'll talk to Stephanie about balancing celebrity, chefdom, and multiple restaurants, and we'll hear Stephanie's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia relished the idea of more women joining the ranks of celebrated chefs. How do we know this? She was one of the first people to put them on television, sharing their talents with her audience. If you watch her later series, Cooking with Master Chefs, you'll see veterans like Julia Child Award recipients Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, and Nancy Silverton, who famously made a dessert that moved Julia to tears. While today these women are recognized celebrity chefs, they were newcomers when Julia invited them on TV. Julia loved to celebrate chefs because she found them to be wonderfully inspiring. In doing so, she helped elevate the profession. I don't think she set out to make them stars in quite the way that today's celebrity chef world has evolved, but I think she'd be thrilled that today's cooking competitions have enabled more female chefs to break through and build multifaceted professional careers in food. A celebrity chef who I know credits Julia for her interest in cooking is Stephanie Izard. Well-known for being the first female winner of Bravo's Top Chef and her girl and the goat brand, Stephanie is a multi-award winning chef, restaurateur, author, and entrepreneur. She's the executive chef and owner of Chicago restaurants Girl and the Goat, Little Goat, Duck Duck Goat, Cabra, and Sugar Goat, and outposts of Girl and the Goat and Cabra in Los Angeles, where she is now based. Among her many accolades, she won a James Beard Award for Best Chef Great Lakes in 2013, and was named Food & Wine's Best New Chef in 2011, although she'd headlined her first restaurant, Scylla, in Chicago before competing in Top Chef in 2008. In addition to her restaurant, Stephanie has a product line called The Little Goat, comprising sauces, spices, and crunch mixes, which leverage the globally inspired and innovative flavor combinations for which she is known. She's also the author of two cookbooks, including Girl in the Kitchen and Gather and Graze, Stephanie joins us today, live from Girl and the Goat in downtown Los Angeles, to share how she navigates the celebrity chef world while building her food empire. 
Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. <laughs> Thanks. It's always funny listening to all of that stuff about yourself. You're like, wow, I feel tired just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> well, I felt tired, you know, rattling all of that off, but I can only imagine. For those who can't see Stephanie, she, she looks refreshed and not exhausted at all. So we were just talking about that. You wear so many hats, chef, author, restaurateur, entrepreneur. Where on earth does your drive and energy come from? <laughs> I want to make sure to put the most important thing on that list as being a mom. Also, I have a six-year-old. Um, just to add to the <laughs> Just to duties. add, but yeah, it's, you know, that's another thing to juggle, but the most important piece. But um, I mean, my energy, I don't know. I seem to just be able to keep going. I feel like at some point I'm just going to want to lay down and take a nap. Um, I get up every morning and I go to the gym and that gets my day started. The days that I don't, I don't have as good of a day. It's just what works for me and everybody needs to find that in themselves. Um... Yeah, I just keep going. I get excited about new things. Even when I say I'm not going to do any more of that because I have too much on my plate, something arises, an opportunity, and I just get excited and say yes. So um, I never really think about the future. I just kind of keep going and all these fun things keep happening. And do you feel like you've always been just an energetic person or someone who couldn't sit still? <laughs> I guess so. I, you know, growing up, I look at old movies. My dad had one, a beta, and we, and before that, a film machine. And I can look at these old videos of myself. And I was like strangely uh, uncomfortably shy when I was little and very kind of quiet off to the side. And my sister was like the ham. <laughs> like, I mean, completely. And I'm off in the corner looking very awkward. Um, so somehow that changed, I think, helpfully from going on TV. But the energy, I don't know if it's come with just like the more that I do. I also was a competitive swimmer growing up, like very intense national champion and all that sort of stuff. So I think like getting into sports, it brings my com competitive nature and just kind of keeps me going. I don't, I don't know. And do you still swim? I was swimming up until the pandemic. Now I just do gym stuff. Um, I should swim. I mean, I'm in LA now, but when I find more time. <laughs> no, the same thing happened to me with the pandemic. My whole swimming regimen went. Yeah. But I was never a national champion. <laughs> so, but that, that kind of makes sense that someone, I mean, being a champion swimmer takes an incredible amount of energy and pacing yourself and right the right nutrition. If you don't eat enough calories, you will not be able to do it. Oh my so. gosh. I, yeah. We had, when I was growing up, we had swim practice at 5am, then you go to school and then we went right into lifting weights, um, running and stuff. And then swim practice again, got home, did homework, went to bed. It was just kind of like that. But I remember I would like squeeze in an afternoon snack. Like I would take an entire bag of frozen French fries and kick it off and eat the whole thing as just a little snack. But the funny thing is that I would garnish the plate. It's like <laughs> one of those things I look back like, and I'm like, I'm like, this was a sign. I would like take, I mean, it was dried parsley. Okay. But like I would put uh, Lowry season salt all over the top and then I would like garnish the plate with parsley, um, just for my snack. And it's like those funny moments when, from being a child that I'm like, Oh, there was a sign that this is what I was going to do. Oh, I love that. Did your teammates notice or they're just like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was eating that by myself. There was like hot, <laughs> shovel that in before going to swimming. But, um, yeah, it was funny. I, I talked a lot about it to my friends. I was like talking about swimming and food all the time. And my friends that weren't in either one of those were like, yeah, we get it, stuff. We like these things. <laughs> wow. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. So I was born in Chicago. My whole family is Chicagoans. But then we moved to the East Coast. My dad got a job in New York. We moved on my first birthday. Oh, okay. And then how did you end up back in Chicago? I, it took me a while to get back there. So I went to University of Michigan, um, graduated, but then went directly to culinary school after that. And then while I was living in Scottsdale, I went to culinary school. I went to Chicago to visit some friends and just, I had my stuff shipped out. I just stayed. I was having such a good weekend. I was like, called my sister and I said, can you just send all my stuff from Scottsdale? And she's like, uh, yeah, sure. Crazy person. So I just kind of moved very spur of the moment. So you have lots of, yeah, that's sort of, I've lived all over the country too. And 
instant. So I'm like both a Californian and a Midwesterner, and my family's from New York City. So oh yeah, there you yeah. go. We're all that's the yeah, same. We're we're the same. Yeah. Do, <laughs> do you get I get stumped by the question like where are you originally from? I'm like uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm definitely a Chicagoan at heart because even growing up, we would spend so much time with our family there, and that's where all my roots are. Um, but growing up on the East Coast a little different and then now being out here. I don't know. It's fun to live in so many different places and just kind of check it out. I always, when I come across people I went to school with or meet people that have never left like the city that they were born in, I mean, more power to you. But like for me, I need to get out there and check out places. Makes sense. So when you won Top Chef, that really made you a household name or at least to fans of Bravo and Top Chef. Now now that Top Chef is heading into its 20th season, which is pretty amazing and kudos to, to the team there. Do you, what's your perspective of whether you think these chef competition and food reality shows have really helped enrich the American food scene or they're mostly entertainment? How do, how do you view them as someone who's deeply connected to them? I think um, a little bit of both. I love that in the past, I mean, shoot, I did Top Chef 15 years ago. So it's been a while since those shows have been like really taking um control the airways. I mean, people, but you'll walk into any sort of setting, like you're walking through the airport or walking through um, a store and you'll hear people talking about food or chefs or things that I think as a larger population is talking about those things all the time. And hopefully they're coming to all of our restaurants and just helping the industry and supporting the industry. But um, it's great to see that it's just kind of turn more people on to just thinking more about food and wanting to cook maybe, or just wanting to go out to eat more and just appreciating the, the world of chefs. Yeah, I agree. I think while there's been some cr- criticism or that, you know, people used to say about Food Network, it was all entertainment and not really education and stuff. I think that's exactly it. It's really raised awareness and interest and respect for the profession, even if some of the shows get a little crazy. <laughs> so do you have any advice for people who want to compete? Because I think also the whole landscape of it has evolved since when you did it. Like, do you feel like, do you tell people they should have an agenda or a goal before signing up or... It's funny, I actually, I can't tell you what I'm going to do soon, but I'm going on another competition. Um, and it's making me very <clears throat> nervous as like an old You can't tell me because it's top secret. I can't tell you because it's top secret. Not because you don't know what it is. Exactly, yeah, I know what it is. I just had a call about it. Um, but I think, you know, all you, I always just go in and I think to myself, just make something that, make sure it represents you. Make sure you stick with your style. Don't try to like look around and see what everybody else is doing um, because you know yourself best and like that's going to shine through in the dishes. And I don't know, on Top Chef, I was like, just don't make anything gross. It's different. At that show, it's like you just don't want to get kicked off. I mean, I think I tried a little harder than that and was able to win a bunch of challenges, but um, taste your food. Be proud of what you're putting in front of the judges, you know? Um, but I think staying true to yourself, I was just talking to another chef friend, Chris Casentino, the other day, we were discussing this secret, top secret thing I'm going to do. Um, and he's like, just stick with what you do, which luckily I do a whole bunch of stuff. So that's kind of easy to stay in the realm, but, um, I think that's important. I'm struck by what we talked about before that having already been a competitor before, do you think that kind of gave you an edge because you maybe approached the nerves and the, 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 the way to focus when you're actually competing to win? I think so. You know, I, um, I mean, I did Top Chef. I was on Iron Chef Gauntlet, was an Iron Chef for the last season of Iron Chef and had to do a bunch of battles as an Iron Chef. I think that was the most stressful because you're you're the, supposed to be the Iron Chef, so you better win, which we were, we were undefeated, so it's fine. But, um, but those, at the end of each one, I would, like, cry for a few minutes because it's, like, the, it's so intense. Um, that hour goes very quickly. Um, but I recently, a couple weeks ago, just did my first competition in years, um, 
it was my friend challenged me to grudge match. It's a new show that's going on Food Network. My friend Shota challenged me. He's apparently still has a grudge on his shoulders that I beat him on Iron Chef Gauntlet. We're really good friends, so it's kind of just a funny thing. And they couldn't get either of us to give each other evil looks. We were just laughing the whole time. But um, it was nice to get back into that flow. And it actually, it was fun. I was like, I have nothing to lose right now. This is just supposed to be fun. I was like talking to the audience and kind of letting a dish kind of come out. And something really cool came together that I was like, oh, that was cool. I don't know where that just came from. Sometimes your brain does things that you're not even participating in. You just kind of keep going. Um, so I feel like that was a good warm up for me to get back into it. But it's every time you're nervous, it's just like any performer. If you, any person that does um, a musician or someone that does Broadway or something, I'm sure everybody still gets that little bit of jitters before they go on. And that just means that you, you know, really care what you're putting out there. Well, and it helps, yeah, to have practice. I think that, that that's the thing I take away from Julia all the time was, despite the perception that she was winging everything, it was so far, everything was carefully scripted, but she intuitively understood that you prepare, 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 and then you let go. And because if, if you try too hard to stay on, you'll just mess up. It's the preparation that helps you kind of zig and zag, I think. Yeah, the preparation and having the support so that if something goes a little off, you're able to fix it and get back on track. And But you have to be open-minded that if something goes a little bit differently, that that's okay. And that's what it, that's what cooking's all about. That is absolutely true. How to how to save a dish is is a, I think what home cooks often need to learn is that's a huge part of what chefs do all the time. It's not about perfection; it's about like quick adaptation <laughs> yeah. and knowing how to do that. Yeah, or even understanding. I always say, if you're following a cookbook, it's understanding each ingredient's role in that recipe so that you can sub in something else because it fits the same. Like that's for acid, that's for heat. What is it bringing to the recipe, and then what? Whether you just want to change it up to make it personal or because they were out of strawberries, you're not going to have a freak out. Just grab some blueberries. Like just having that sort of uh, adaptation. But you kind of need to know experience, right? If you're going to sub out strawberries for blueberries, there are certain fruits if you subbed out would cause a chemical reaction that would then ruin the whole dish, right? So yeah, there's <laughs> chemistry does play. It's going to be anarchy. <laughs> so I want to ask you, I noticed that, you know, you talk about, you mentioned you're a mom and you post pictures of your son on Instagram and because you have a high public profile, I was just curious how you how you balance that or how you decided that you're totally comfortable living in the private eye or there's kind of a part of yourself you reveal. How, how do you keep the personal and private or it's not something that you've just let it go? I just kind of let it go. I feel like after going on Top Chef and doing so many different things, like people just know everything about you, you know, and I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I don't, um, I love sharing pictures of Ernie because he's, freaking adorable and it's a huge part of my life and I think other people enjoy it I um you know not in a way of like trying to use that for anything I just think I have a cute picture of him I'm like I feel like this just made me smile today and hopefully it'll make somebody else smile today too oh that's nice well I, I think that's good you, yeah you seem incredibly comfortable with it I think um you know I think a lot of maybe maybe it's more with famous actors but you know actually quite struggle with privacy versus public and the need but yeah I feel like I'm I always say I'm like fake famous like yes chefs are um famous chefs have become quite a thing but you know we're a little bit less um I don't know we're a little bit more just down to earth maybe than sometimes people that are like you know truly like in huge movies and can't walk into a space without being noticed by everyone in the room I can I can see how like keeping these a little more private at that point but um yeah I don't know I just think it's fun and I'm a pretty open person so Yes, clearly. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll come back with more from Chef Stephanie Eisard. Stay with us.
do good, really good, is proud to offer Home Cooks a collection of flavored forward broths and broth concentrates. Sold in glass jars, the gourmet broth lineup includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths. For even more versatility, Zoop offers new culinary concentrates available in chicken bone broth, beef bone broth, and savory vegan. All flavor and no fillers, these clean label broth bases easily boost the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. Short on time, Zoop just launched new shelf-stable premium soups for enjoying a gourmet meal in minutes. All products are free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, gluten, and GMOs, and are available at your favorite retailers across the country, plus online at zoopbroth.com. Browse recipes and learn more at zoopbroth.com or by following at zoopgoodreallygood on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Stephanie Izard about balancing celebrity, creativity, and business goals. So can't sit with you here in Girl in the Goat in downtown LA and not ask you about goat. So how did it become your moniker and, and what should we better appreciate about eating it? Um, So my last name is a type of goat in French. Isard is a mountain goat, sort of like a goat antelope that lives in the Pyrenees Mountains. I didn't know that until a couple years before we opened Girl and the Goat. I'd had my first restaurant, Scylla, named after the Odyssey. It turns out it's an evil sea monster, not my best name choice. Nobody (laughs) could pronounce it anyways. Um, And then, so when I found that, I was like, oh, well, goat seems pretty easy to pronounce. I feel like we should do something with this. We were originally going to be the drunken goat because in my 20s, that was a good descriptor of me, um, like lots of people. And But then the drunken goat cheese lady said, oh, that's fun. And then I think her lawyer said, no, 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 that's not fine. Um, so we had to, like, make a little change. And so we went with girl and the goat, which is so much more fitting anyways. But my friend, uh, Quang, who actually did the paintings that are behind us here, oh. um, he designed the goat that has become our little, you know, he's our little buddy. He's everywhere. If you go to Randolph Street in Chicago, there's like a spinning goat at the top of Little Goat and there's people walking around in goat t-shirts everywhere because we have restaurants all over that neighborhood. So it's really fun to just see. And he's just become our little like beacon. I don't know. It's not something that I thought was going to happen. It just seemed like a cute goat in the beginning. Um, But so we were opening Girl and the Goat. We were like, well, we've never actually cooked goat. I feel like we should put goat on the menu or it might be kind of strange. So the name and the idea was there before the dishes. Oh, 100%. We were just going to, because it was named after me, it wasn't named after the food. Um, But so then we sought out and like got goat from a couple of farmers in Illinois tasted them next to each other. The first thing we ever did was just kind of smoke and braise a goat, goat shoulder because that was all, that's kind of like, you know, an easy thing to do with meat if you've not done anything with it before, like knowing how to cook pork and everything. And then over time, we've kind of um, learned to understand the animal, like the meat a little bit more. It's very different than cooking pork. There's like no fat on it. It's a very skinny animal. Um, so when we do goat belly, we confit it in fat that we save up over time. Each time we make stock or anything, we take that little bit of fat and we just keep building on it. Uh, and then we layer the little skinny goat bellies to make a nice big chunk of goat belly. So, so different than just taking like I mean, we all love pork belly and pork. It's it's delicious. Um, But we don't have all that fat with the goat. So just kind of trying to understand the meat. And now it's become, you can get, you can get whole goat shoulders and goat legs at the restaurants. You can get goat empanadas, goat neck, goat loin, goat shank. We're working on it. I'm going to meet with my chef after this and make a little goat tataki to use up our tiny little goat loins that come off. So it's fun. 
and do you, do you feel like you single-handedly moved goat consumption in the U.S. <laughs> or? Um, I wish that it would go up more and more. It would make it much easier to find. We coming out to LA, I was like, well, it's LA. There's farms everywhere. Of course, there's going to be goat farmers galore, which is just not true. Um, so we have this goat farmer we work with in Illinois that we've been getting goat from for the last 12 years, and it's amazing goat. And it took us a while. It took us months to find it here. We were shipping goat from Chicago or just giving it to everybody. We kept having team members fly out for various things. So we just have everybody <laughs> just fly with checking goat. Checking goats. Exactly. Goat carcasses. Yep. Yep. We would have like four boxes of like goat coming with each passenger. Wow. Um, and then that was obviously not real. I was like, this can't happen for the next 10 years of our lives. You know, yeah, we need to find a goat farmer. Sustainable. So we found a goat farmer here. It's just, you know, it's exponentially more expensive and all of those sort of things. So it's one of those struggles. I We have this, we joke about it. And then knowing me, like, I'll probably eventually figure this out. We're like, we just need our own goat farm out here. So. All right. You heard it you here. Heard it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's the goat farm here? <clears throat> oh, it's. Uh, or in it's, California. It's like 500 miles away. 500 miles oh, away. Like so northern. it's still. Yeah. Like they truck it down once a week, so it's quite the situation to get goat here. Um, but it's you have to use the right goat. If you don't, uh, if is it you, certain breeds or more? Yeah, it should be a boar goat, um, but it also has to be raised properly and castrated at the right time. And like, it makes a huge difference. If you have, there was one day I was at Little Goat years ago, and we'd run out of goat meat. And I'm like, it's Little Goat. How are we gonna have our burger today if we don't even meat? And we went to the butcher shop next door that started selling goat when we opened. They painted a goat outside the butcher shop and started selling it. And we got a pound to try and I opened it up and it was bright red. It looked beautiful. And I was like, oh, what a great, like saving grace. Like anytime we run out, we could just get some from there. We cooked it off and I spit it out. And I was like, this is what goat tastes like if it's not raised properly. And this is why people don't like goat because that's why people put like super heavy sauces on to cover up that funky taste. Mm. That's what it tasted like. Whereas the goat that we get is very pure. It's delicious. You don't need to put a heavy sauce on it to cover anything up. Is um, that mostly because of what goats are fed or what they're eating? Or fed and eating and like the, it makes a big difference. Oh, you can't but see. With the males. She's I know you a, can't a, see a me. A medical, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes a big difference just on males, just how they're raised and such. So, and typically, if, if, like with cows, are you mostly eating male goats? Mm-hmm. Yes, mostly male goat. Um, yeah. Should we shock people that mostly you're eating male cows because they keep the females alive to breed them? To make more. So just, <laughs> just in case you were up, weren't up on animal husbandry. Cool. So, just switching from goats that was really fascinating <laughs> that was um we we talked before like all these things you're juggling but you're also known i feel like really in the industry for your creativity like using goat and coming up with and everything we just discussed but obviously being a successful entrepreneur you have so many different businesses how, how do you find a way to like stay creative or move into the entrepreneurial realm that's okay no one was injured if that came across on the um Christina is fine. Um, it's tricky, you know, it's, I think each day I have to decide like what I'm going to kind of spend my day doing. And I try to, I was traveling so much more like all of us were, and that was good inspiration. Um, I need to like find time to go out to eat more and just flip through food magazines and things just to kind of, you'll see a picture of like a parsnip and be like, oh, I haven't used a parsnip in years. Maybe we should get some parsnips. Um, it just like reminds you to start thinking about things. So, and it, recently I just um, launched a TV show called The Curious Chef on Taste Made. And in each episode I go and cook with chefs from different backgrounds. So I cooked with these guys from Nigeria. It was awesome. There was like ingredients I've never seen before. Fermented locust beans. I will shout this out, although don't go buy them all because we struggle to keep buying them out. <laughs> Out at this one market that we found. Um, but for someone that I like, love fish sauce. I, I love soy sauce. I love that sort of funky of the fish sauce. 
fermented locust beans, you open it up and I think and the average person would be like, make that face of just like, oh, what is that smell? And I open it up and I'm like, oh, amazing. What is this? I cannot wait to use this. Um, so it's fun to just find different people to cook with and just continue to learn about flavors from the round world and find flavors I haven't used before and then figure out ways to work them in our menus. And now we have um, our lamb satays here come with a stew that has some of those fermented locust beans in it. It's so good. So I think amazingly what, I, what I'm hearing is you actually end up getting creative ideas and energy even from like doing all these TV shows because of the oh, sure. people you're working with. Yeah, I think even, you know, I just did, I was saying I did that grudge match against Shota and watching him cook, I learned some new things of what he was doing. He brought, he had to bring a secret ingredient to try to stump me. I brought the fermented locust beans and he brought mountain yams, which I haven't had a chance to get any in and play with yet, but it's interesting to see how they work and that they can bring interesting texture to like waffle batter or um, okonomiyaki batter, things like that. So I, when I'm cooking with other chefs or if I'm out doing um, charity dinners, I just did one in Chicago with a bunch of different chefs and all, I mean, it was a, the people that came to that dinner were very lucky. Every course was like super amazing and very much that chef, but like saw some ingredients I hadn't seen used in different ways and just was very inspiring. So I think the more I get out there and like cook with other chefs and just see what's going on, it gives great inspiration. And do you have, clearly you have some prowess for delegating or you would not be able to run as many restaurants and businesses as you are. <laughs> Is that also one of the secrets is finding <laughs> the right people to work with and oh, or you well, can go off for however long yeah. to shoot and that's what it's all about I think you can I mean you can be successful with one restaurant and not doing anything outside of that and being there every day and um, you're gonna drive yourself nuts but you it's all about finding people that you trust I have people that have worked in my restaurants anywhere from you know since the beginning since for the past 12 years at Girl and the Goat um, my back of house director of operations Jan who's like my head chef of all the chefs he and I've been working together since our 20s so which is 25 years ago <laughs> to put it in if you can't see me and see how old I am sitting here um she looked exactly the same as when she was on top <laughs> chef all that exercise right yeah um so it's all about finding amazing people like Jason my chef de cuisine here at Girl in the Goat LA I even though I live in LA I still don't get to come to tasting we put up every dish every day I still don't get to come more often than like every other week and taste it and but the consistency is truly amazing because they they understand what we're looking for we work together to like really dial it in and then they just work hard to upkeep it so I have amazing people on my teams and we talked a little bit about some of your entrepreneurial activities like the the product line are is this all stuff that's just sort of grown out of something or do you have actually ambitious business goals of your own I do. I, so this little goat is the name of the brand. It started off as a little side project years and years ago. Someone said, how do you make the green beans? And they've been on the menu, both girl and the goats since they opened. Um, it's a fish sauce vinaigrette. And we eventually decided to put that fish sauce vinaigrette into a bottle. And we were originally just selling that and a few other sauces in bottles at the restaurant. And then I was like, this is kind of fun. So we kind of changed around the bottles um, redid the branding, made it bright and colorful and good for shelves at grocery stores. So now we have a line of sauces, we have spices, we have everything crunches, which are puffed rice mixes. And we just launched Chili Crunch this year, which they're delicious. Check out this little Chili Crunch. Um, it's all things we use in our restaurants, but it's they're so good on anything. Um, so now we have them. They're in, uh, I think right now we're close to 2,000 stores around the country, but hopefully we just got some new salespeople. And that is a huge goal of mine is to grow that business. And I have a whole, it's separate of the restaurants. I have a whole separate team. I have a, my COO is a chef from Chicago that we've been friends for years and is now running my company for me. And we have a 
don't know, about 15 people on our team right now. And so is it your own company, though? It's not something you've started with Kraft or Nabisco? Or... No, it's my own company. And then the goal is then you sell it to one of those companies later in life. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I, well, the track <laughs> record is pretty good. So, okay, let's, let's, let's fantasize about that. You uh, get to that point, you sell it. What do you do next? Do you start another business? What do you think? Or, or... <laughs> I don't think so. I, you know, I, um, as much as I love doing so many different things, I still definitely see an ending point. I don't know how it ends. And I ask that all the time. I'm like, how does this end? Like, <laughs> do I just stop going to work one day? You know, I, I have no idea. Um, I would have to figure out how to. You already managed a pandemic. So yeah, it's not that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know how it all ends, but I also don't see myself um, 20 years from now walking around inside of a restaurant. I want to retire and go enjoy it. My son is six. Um, in 10 years, he'll be in high school. At that, I feel like each time I open a restaurant, it resets the clock for 10 more years. I have to at least be open for 10 years. <laughs> so let's say 10 years from now, because we just opened Cabra, I shall drop the mic and peace out. I don't know. Hopefully we'll sell the sauce line. We'll see what happens with the restaurants. But I want to push, 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 do as much as I possibly can. Um, and that's why I work so hard. And then just go travel and enjoy hanging out with my son, Ernie. And tell, tell us about Cabra. What, um, I don't know if from Chicago and you're pretty recently opening in LA, right? Yeah, yeah. So Cabra, it's funny because Cabra is goat in Spanish, but that seems to have lost a lot of people. Um, <laughs> they're like, wow, you really steered off without it. I'm like, it's just in another language. Um, but now we like look back, we're like, how could we get people to, they're like, someone stole your logo, this place Cabra. I'm like, no, it's because it's our restaurant. <laughs> That's why it still has the same goat, but dressed up differently. Um, Cabra's awesome. So in Chicago, my partners were actually, they wanted to open a Peruvian-inspired restaurant. Um, all the other restaurants, like Duck Duck Goat, a Chinese-inspired restaurant was my idea. I just said, can I open a Chinese-inspired restaurant? Um, but that one they were going to do with another chef, and then he left the company. And so they called me one day and said, would you be interested in opening a Peruvian restaurant? And I was like, if I go to Peru and see how I feel about it. So we got our little group together. We get like a little posse of me and my chef, Jan, who I mentioned, we've known each other forever. Um... We got a little group and we went down to Lima and like went to Lima, um, Arequipa, Cusco. Of course, we went to Machu Picchu with my three-year-old with me. And that was the worst idea ever. I'd never do that. Um, it was scary. Uh, but we because just, of the altitude? Or, oh, my or, God. Just It's like death. Or, you know, oh, like, you mean you could fall up at off Machu at Picchu? Any, yes. Yeah. It doesn't have guardrails like Disney. <laughs> no, Island. there's like a tiny little string. Like Death is on the other side of that string. And why do you have a three-year-old with you? And I fully agree not to do that. But anyways, we were there. Um, but Lima and, and all the food that we had and all the people we met, and it's like such an inviting, warm, amazing, bright, colorful, great place. I loved it. And the food is incredible. And it takes inspiration from Japan, China, Italy, Spain. Those are kind of the biggest influences. And then you like put the most perf world's perfect seafood because of we learned something about how the oceans cross each other there. And we can't possibly get uni like that here. It's incredible. You have to go. Um, and then lots of lime juice. They have these limones that you can't get here either that you could just eat one. They're so good. And so we have to mix salt orange juice into our lime juice. But anyways, Peruvian cuisine, <clears throat> I was like, this is it fits me very well. It's a lot of things that I like to do that we can find ways to kind of do, take inspiration and make our menu inspired by it. Wow. So what, what, what's that? <laughs> I just got really excited. No, about that's it. incredible. So I was, I was trying to, yes, I know some Peruvians, but I've not been there. And actually there were some Peruvian restaurants in London that are really good. Um, so what's, uh, what are kind of a couple of the signature dishes just to give people an idea yeah, of some of the I mean, flavors? 
We do things, um, some of the more classic, we have our sort of classic ceviche where we take bass, it's diced up, it's got, we put a little bit of pickled shallots in there and it's all about the leche, leche de tigre. So ceviche in Peru, totally different than Mexican ceviche, both delicious in their own way. Um, in Peru, you take fresh fish, we season it a little bit, but then you pour the leche over the top, which basically we have sorry, fish the le le Leche means milk, but what, yeah, what tiger's it, milk. So, but there is no, there's no dairy in it. It's just called tiger's yeah. milk. And you, no tiger in it. No tigers. <laughs> no, I don't think. You're not milking. <laughs> Tigers yeah. now along beside the goat park. <laughs> um, that'd be a whole nother Don't thing. Don't try that Don't at home, that, ever. No. <laughs> um, we take uh, lime juice, fish stock, what other other flavors. We actually end up putting, we have, uh, this is interesting, we have pickled golden raisins blended up in our leche because it helps um, with those limes that you get in the U.S. that are just a little more bitter than the limons. You blend that up and you blend it with fish scraps and that's how it gets milky and that's where the tiger's milk comes from. So our classic has this leche that it took us a long time to develop when we all get by. I remember actually crying because we we're playing around with all the different leches we want to do for our different ceviches. And they were all so bitter because of the whole lime situation. And finally we decided to put a little bit of orange juice for their lime juice, which really helps. And then we found different ways to make each leche get just enough um, sweetness and spice or whatever it needs to balance it so that those limes don't kind of take over with their bitterness. But yeah, it was like cracking the code on what a leche was and how we would use it. Um, but now you can go to our restaurants. Both of them have different things on the menus, um, the Cabra in LA and Chicago. Um, what else? I mean, I'm just like thinking through that. We have things that we kind of just took really inspiration from. We had this one uh, leche that we were there. It was like this white creamy sauce. And we were like, what is that? It was like so familiar, but we couldn't figure out what it was. It was a Parmesan leche. So taking that Italian and Spanish influence really, but the Parmesan in with lime juice and fish stock and everything makes this beautiful creamy leche. And at Cabra LA, it's served with um, little base scallops and little bits of sweet potato. And we'd take some like fried rapini on top with a fun spice mix on it and fried sweet potato chips and all this stuff. So, um, and ahi limo oil. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of taking inspiration of the flavors and kind of putting them together. So, and a giant pork shank, got to get the giant pork shank. It's like everything, you go into the mountains, Arequipa, chicharron is fried anything. It's not just pork skin. Um, there's just all these like yummy fried meats on the table. So we do a big uh, fried pork shank with the skin still on. So for like food lovers, you eat that skin, you dig out that fat and you put it on the little flatbread that it comes with and you eat the meat too and mix it all together. It's pretty good. <laughs> My mouth is definitely watering. And now that, that's really fascinating about the different, because Spanish and Mexican ceviche is more just fish marinated in acid, right? right. And that's a lot more elaborate. And yep. I did not know that. That's yeah, it's more like it's a sauce rather than, it's not cooked in the lime juice as much, just a yummy lime juice on top. So we talked about your diverse background, sort of living in all different parts of the country. And I was just curious, like to me, my brother lives in Chicago, so I know it a little bit. And it, I grew up in the Midwest, but I'm a Californian too. Like, are the did you have to translate the vibes between what you did in Chicago to LA? Or have you actually found their compatible or like what's been the is it a how, how have you transferred things could you just duplicate or that didn't quite work I think um any Chicagoan when you say that you're moving to LA kind of makes like I call it the LA face they're kind of like judging you like you're moving to LA because they don't know LA and I, I mean I'm still getting to know it but I think like they think of this tiny little piece of it that they see like 
Beverly Hills, Hollywood, like that one piece of it, where there's so much more into LA than that. And where we are on the east side, so we're sitting in the Arts District. And if you look around this neighborhood, it looks very similar to the West Loop in Chicago. It has a very similar feel. It's just kind of like badass and rustic, and there's like cool stuff going on, and it's transforming from not having a lot going on to just, I mean, I'm looking across the street, there's like some whole giant building going up. Um, it's definitely growing, just like the neighborhood where we are in Chicago did. So I think after being here for a little bit, and like after we are open for a couple of weeks, we realized people, there's some things that we just sold even more of here than we ever did in Chicago, like our goat liver moose was like our, I was like, called the guys in Chicago. I'm like, dude, we're selling like 65 of these a night. And like, we've never, that's never happened in Chicago. Our duck tartare, we sell more here. Like things that I thought wouldn't go well in LA just because like people's misconception of it, um, sell even more here. There's like meat loving, bread loving, food loving, dessert loving like people out here. Like too many dieters here. There's who no would dieters. Say, not yeah, that, yeah. not that come in here. People like to eat. People like to eat. And I mean, desserts we sell, you know, it's, it's so interesting. So I love it. We've been able to do a lot of similar things, but then there's some things like pig face we have on the menu Chicago because we have a farmer with a hundred pig heads a week that he doesn't have anything to do with. We don't have a farmer with a hundred pig heads here. So we're not going to go take all the pig's heads. Um, so we adapt, we have a different menu, like sort of pork dish here that you can only get here that you can get in Chicago. Um, so there's certain things that, and whether the farmer's market, I mean, you go to the farmer's market today here, there's strawberries and a winter squash sitting next to each other at a stand, and you're completely confused as a chef from the Midwest. Um, so your menu has strawberries and winter squash on it, and you think that you're messing up, but you're not. So it's, those kind of things make it different too. Yes, I, I saw some amazing colored cauliflower in the market. And this has been going on for like a month. And I'm like, and, you know, I asked the vendor and she's like, no, we have them all year round because yeah. it's California. It's very interesting. It makes almost, I almost like got upset at the market the other day because I was like, I don't even know what to do. <laughs> but there was amazing persimmons, that, you know, and just going to the market and being like, do you want to try this little pineapple guava? I'm like, well, yes, I do. I've never even like seen a tiny little guava before. Like, what is that? And I just shove them in my mouth. It's very cool to try new things. Yeah, no, there's a lot here, especially with there are a lot of Asian uh, different Asian culture specialty vendors who make this produce that, you know, some of it's like a variation on a cucumber, but it's a different flavor profile. Yeah. So Chicago or LA for the holidays? <clears throat> um, or somewhere else? LA, LA for Thanksgiving because it's such a quick thing and I have to go do this secret thing next week. Um, and then New Year's, I'm going to be in Chicago this year because it's actually Little Goat where we have it in Chicago is moving locations to a much smaller one in a different neighborhood. And it's kind of a big deal. It's been in that neighborhood for 10 years. So we're doing our last two raw party. And so any, any chance to go to a dance party, count me in anyways. But I want to go celebrate with the team and celebrate with the neighborhood sort of the last night that that location will be open. I see. And does Ernie go with you to... He comes sometimes, not to the New Year's party because I'll be, you know, tearing it up Adult. a little bit. Yeah. Um... But he has come back to Chicago with me, and I, when the opportunity arises to take him on trips, when it, you know it's now that he's actually in real in first grade, you can't just rip him out of school any chance. Um, but I'm hoping next summer to take him on some cool trips. Nice. All right, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll hear Stephanie's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really. You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. 
Stephanie, what's your Julia moment? This is a hard one because I feel like there's little bits and pieces of it. But when I think back to when I was growing up and I started to realize that I was a little different or that I had a different interest than maybe some other people did. My friends would be talking about whatever they were watching on TV and I just kept talking about Julia Child and like Ann Ken Cook and think that's what I wanted to watch and my friends thought I was crazy. Um, just when you're in eighth grade, it doesn't seem like the go-to television show. Um, but I just loved it. I was so drawn to it. And I think for me, Julia Child and learning more about and starting as an adult, starting to read more about her and understand more because I just missed the opportunity. I'm a little bit too young to have like been able to hang out with her. Um, she brought humor into the kitchen. That's my favorite part about her is like, I mean, she was badass. She's probably like 10 feet taller than me, like a took control woman, but like took risks, changed career, did all this crazy stuff. But she was laughing in the kitchen. And I think there's so many people still to this day that take it way too seriously. Um, and we like to run our kitchens in a way where our cooks are laughing, they're having fun. That what's, that's what helps you like work hard and you can feel it and taste it in the food. So I think the biggest thing I take from her is like, bring humor in the kitchen, have a good time. That's what it's all about. I love that you brought that up because I think that that was really important to her. Maybe not being a ham in the way she was on TV, but that's how she viewed cooking, particularly with other people, that it was a social event, both in the kitchen and afterward. And it was meant to be fun. And that's part of also why she thought people should get more into it because they would realize it's fun and realize that it's actually not a solitary thing, that it's best done with other people. So I love that you picked that. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That was fun. Thank Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I have to live up to Julia's expectations. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. For more from Stephanie, it's at Stephanie Izard on Facebook and Instagram and at This Little Goat on Instagram. For a deep dive into all her ventures, which we talked about, check out stephanieizard.com. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for all the latest in and around Santa Barbara. Maybe we'll lure Stephanie up there for one of our events. Ooh. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.